leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Convert short-term memories into long-term memories through the formation and stabilization of new connections between neurons. Tetra Therapeutics is working to treat cognitive impairment and memory loss from Alzheimer's disease by developing an experimental therapy intended to stabilize these connections. We spoke to Mark Gurney, CEO of Tetra Therapeutics, about memory loss in Alzheimer's disease, the company's experimental therapy to treat the condition, and a recent study he was involved in that suggests TNF inhibitors may provide protection against the condition in patients with autoimmune diseases. Mark, thanks for joining us. Um, thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be back on your uh, podcast. We're going to talk about Tetra Therapeutics, Alzheimer's disease, and your therapy and development to treat the condition. I, I wanted to start, though, with some recent research you were involved with that looked at TNF inhibitors, a, a class of biologics used to treat autoimmune conditions, and their potential effect on providing protection against Alzheimer's disease. What exactly did you look at in the study? Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be on your show and uh, share these exciting new results with you. We've been collaborating with a data scientist at Case Western University. Her name is uh, Professor Rong Zhu, and we've been working as well with her student, uh, Mengxi Zhu. They have access to the IBM Watson Explorers database. And this is a database of health records for 56 million patients in the United States over the age of 18. Uh, these patients are from all 50 states. They're from 360 different hospitals and uh, over 300,000 community providers. So it's a very unique look at the demographics of disease across the total United States population, whether or not you have private insurance, uh, Medicare, or Medicaid. And so in the literature, and also uh, there was a, 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 a prominent article uh, earlier in the spring um, discussing the association of inflammatory disease in the body, uh, uh, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, with an ele elevated risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so uh, Dr. Zhu uh, and I were able to dive into this database and ask that question across a broad range of inflammatory diseases all of which have in part, um, are, all of which are due in part to a, a protein called tumor necrosis factor, or TNF. 
And these diseases are treated effectively by TNF blockers. And Tanercept, uh, Adalimumab, and Inflamixumab. That's a mouthful. <laughs> and uh, what we found is that in this database, patients with rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease had elevated risk for Alzheimer's disease and or dementia. And the elevation in risk was quite high. So, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis, the elevation of risk is twofold. It's uh, in, in inflammatory bowel disease, it's uh, two and a half fold. Uh, psoriasis is a bit less, a 40% increase in risk. And two to three fold increase in risk is what we see with uh, genetic uh, factors. So, for example, there's a lipid protein, a lipid carrier protein known as APOE4, um, and carriers of the APOE4 gene are at about a threefold elevated risk for Alzheimer's disease. So this is a major uh, major uh, risk factor for Alzheimer's in a very specific uh, subgroup of people with uh, inflammatory disease affecting either the joints, the gut, or the or the skin. These drugs might be more familiar to listeners as drugs like Umara and, and Remicade. Are they acting locally? Or are they doing something more than just inhibiting TNF? Yes. Yeah, so what we found is that. Um, if the disease in the body is, is increasing the production of TNF, and we can then, or in this database, we see that the TNF-blocking drugs correspondingly reduce risk for Alzheimer's disease. So in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, there's a 60 to 70% risk reduction with uh, uh, intanercept or adalimumab. In psoriasis, again, there's a 50 to 60% risk reduction with either of those two drugs. And what we also know from the literature is that uh, studies in mice have shown that TNF produced in the body, transported in the blood, can be carried into the brain by a process known as transcytosis, and that's mediated by the TNF receptors. So our hypothesis is that systemic inflammatory disease through the production of TNF is able to either trigger or exacerbate the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. And I think this is a totally novel concept for causation in Alzheimer's disease. Normally, we think of it as a brain disease. Um, The patients have a characteristic of pathology in the brain involving uh, pathology known, known as plaques and tangles. The plaques and tangles are formed by proteins that are made in the brain. But these data suggest for the first time that um, inflammatory risk um, and an inflammatory process in the body may actually be then able to uh, trigger or exacerbate a disease process in the brain. And I think that's profound. I think it tells us that there might be another way of approaching uh, the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. You certainly wouldn't um, use drugs as expensive as TNF inhibitors as prophylactic treatments, I would imagine. But in terms of the mechanism of action, is it suggesting anything in terms of how to approach Alzheimer's differently? Well, I think in this subset of patients, uh, most of whom are already being treated with one of the biologic drugs, in addition to the benefit for rheumatoid arthritis or psoriasis or inflammatory bowel disease, there is a reduction in risk in Alzheimer's. And you're absolutely correct to point out that these drugs would not be given 
to a healthy individual who uh, did not have inflammatory disease in their body. They're accompanied by severe side effects. They increase the risk of infection. As you say, they're very expensive drugs, and they're difficult to administer. But I think what this tells us for the first time is that there are patients in which drugs can prevent um, Alzheimer's disease. And that's profound. I, I think we've had so much discouragement in the Alzheimer's space. And, uh, you know, we've, many of us have wondered, well, will, be, will we ever be successful? And I think in this instance, uh, we, there is evidence that these drugs are, do have benefit. And this um, risk factor of the inflammatory disease in the body, we think accounts for up to 6% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease. And those are being taken off the table through the, uh, the, the treatment with the TNF blocking agent. Well, let's take a step back and talk about Alzheimer's disease more broadly. How is it generally being approached, and, and how significant a health concern is it today? It's a tremendously important health concern. We, uh, our generation, my, my generation, the baby boom generation, is a demographic bulge that's moving through um, all developed countries. So the United States, uh, European Union, Japan, China. In China, there will be more Alzheimer's patients by 2050 than the total population of the United States. There will be over 300 million Alzheimer's patients in, in, uh, in China. In Japan, it's an aging population. Um, uh, they're reaching a point where at least half of the people in Japan currently living will be over 65 years of age. Uh, the United States has a younger population because of immigration. But similarly, um, we face the issue of are there enough young people to care for all of the old people that potentially will develop Alzheimer's disease. So this disease, unfortunately, is going to have a, a tremendous and negative impact on our economy. Why do you think it's been such an intractable disease for drug developers? Well, we've worked hard. We've worked hard for many years. Um, our, the, the starting point was the pathology, the amyloid and the, and the tangles. And it was discovered uh, about 20 years ago now that the amyloid uh, peptide in the, that's being deposited in the Alzheimer's brain is coming from a precursor protein. And that peptide is cleaved from the precursor protein by um, distinct enzymes, one of which is called uh, BASE, uh, the beta amyloid cleaving enzyme. And so uh, uh, mutations in the amyloid protein precursor, mutations in the processing site for release of the A-beta peptide, mutations in some of the processing enzymes, all caused early-onset Alzheimer's disease. And that was a tremendous finding. It was tremendously important for the field because it then anchored the understanding of early-onset Alzheimer's disease in a distinct and, and a molecular pathway that could be studied with modern genetic and biochemical tools. What we're finding is that early-onset Alzheimer's disease may not be a model or a predictor of the benefit of drugs in late-onset Alzheimer's disease. And that's the type of Alzheimer's that most patients develop. Uh, so there was a huge effort within the pharmaceutical industry, um, costing many billions of dollars 
to target the amyloid pathway, the production of this amyloid peptide that's deposited in brain. So we see some success with monoclonal antibody therapy directed against the amyloid peptide in which the therapeutic goal was to remove amyloid from brain, and that can be done. And there is uh, at least one drug in development uh, by Biogen. The name is aducanumab that now has uh, reported some success in large uh, phase three clinical trials. And then the other shot on goal was to inhibit the enzyme, the enzyme that produces the A-beta peptide. And in that case, um, there were three very large programs that uh, went into late-stage clinical trials, and all of them were ended for futility. And there were also issues with, safe, with the safety of inhibiting this particular uh, base uh, enzyme. So that was a sustained and costly effort over multiple years, addressing what we thought was the basis for disease based on the genetic data. So we're regrouping. Uh, we're looking now for those of us that are developing drugs to, to treat Alzheimer's disease are looking for non-amyloid, uh, non-tau uh, disease mechanisms or therapeutic mechanisms that may play some uh, that may provide some benefit. We've had a chance in the past to discuss Tetra on our sister podcast, Rarecast. We've talked about your experimental therapy and development for the rare neurological condition, Fragile X, but you're also pursuing this as a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease. This is BPN-14770, a PDE4D inhibitor. What is PDE4D and, and what role does it play in behavior and cognition? The way we um, change connections in our brain is by modulating a signaling molecule called uh, cyclic AMP. And PDE4, or phosphodiesterase type 4, is the major enzyme in the body that metabolizes cyclic AMP. So cyclic AMP is a signaling molecule. It's produced uh, at the connections between uh, two neurons. And then this enzyme destroys that signaling molecule so it can't spread further within the, within the neuron. And so our interest is in discovering non-amyloid, non-tau uh, therapies for Alzheimer's disease, and our focus is on protecting the connections between neurons. We think that if we can protect the connections between neurons from damage, either we can delay the onset of Alzheimer's disease or provide symptomatic uh, benefits. So the connections that we're focusing on are called excitatory connections. So they are the connections between neurons that carry information. And they occur on structures called dendritic spines. So the dendrite is the antenna for the neuron. And those antennas, those dendrites, are covered with projections called spines. And other neurons make connections on those spines. And so within the spine, there's a molecular machinery for um, communication across the connection, across the synapse, and also molecular machinery for stabilizing that connection. And so one of the very interesting findings in the Alzheimer's field is now that we have um, imaging agents with which we can image uh, amyloid deposits in, um, in patients, we see that some patients have made amyloid deposits in their brain at a level that would suggest they have Alzheimer's disease, but they're still cognitively normal. 
So that has raised the question, why is it that in these healthy individuals at age 80, even though they have evidence of disease, they have a cognitive reserve or cognitive resilience and have not developed dementia? And so we think the mechanism of our drug, by acting on the synapse to protect it from injury and stabilize it, may be one of the factors that accounts for cognitive resilience in people that uh, have amyloid but no dementia. And so I think that's an exciting uh, therapeutic concept, concept, that we can actually protect synapses and perhaps help the brain heal itself, even in the face of this devastating illness. We discussed your look at TNF inhibitors and the role it suggests about inflammation in Alzheimer's disease. Does BPN-1477 have any effect on brain inflammation? There are four PD-4s in brain, or there's actually there are four PD-4s in the human genome, and three of them are present in brain. So they're, they're labeled A, B, C, and D. So our cognition drug is an allosteric inhibitor of the PD-4D subtype. And we think the PD-4D subtype is important for cognition because there are very rare mutations in humans that cause intellectual disability. We think one of the other variants of PD-4 is important for inflammation and is important for regulating the production of the TNF, and that's the enzyme known as PD-4B. PD-4B is present in uh, inflammatory cells in the body. Those are known as macrophages, and it's also present in inflammatory cells in the brain. Those are known as microglia. And in fact, microglia and, and uh, macrophages both come from the bone marrow. And so there are small molecule drugs uh, currently in the market that are used to treat rheumatoid arthritis and psoriasis. The brand name, uh, the names of the drugs are Rifumilast and Apremilast. And these co- these um, uh, compounds, we think, have their efficacy uh, through in- inhibiting PD-4B. And so our pipeline project is uh, is targeting uh, uh, a selective inhibitor of PD-4B that's brain penetrant. And very broadly, we think that could address um, chronic uh, neuron degeneration in multiple sclerosis. Uh, it could a- a- address chronic traumatic encephalopathy after brain injury, and also uh, inflammation as a as a component of Alzheimer's disease. I mentioned you're also developing this drug for fragile X as, as well as traumatic brain injury. Does it suggest something about the relationship between all these conditions? In the case of Alzheimer's disease, the goal with BPN-14770 is to protect the connections between neurons from damage. In Fragile X syndrome, the connections between neurons don't form properly. They don't mature. And one of the earliest biochemical changes that was identified in patients with Fragile X syndrome is a decrease in the amount of that signaling molecule, the cyclic AMP that the PD-4 acts upon. And so uh, once the gene that causes Fragile X syndrome was identified, uh, it's, a, it's an inactivated in patients, and it's on the X chromosome. So that's why it's called Fragile X. And by being on the X chromosome, inactivation of that gene affects primarily men more than women, and so fragile X patients are typically uh, uh, are typically uh, uh, men. 
And so once the gene was identified, it was possible to make, uh, it was learned that uh, fruit flies, Drosophila, contain a fragile X gene, and mice contain a fragile X gene. And so if you knock out the fragile X gene either in the fruit flies or the mice, you see the same biochemical change. They may make less cyclic AMP. You see the same behavioral changes as in the patient. They have a autis- autistic-like behavior. And fruit flies, the male fruit flies don't wave their wings at females. They don't do this little courtship dance. And in mice, uh, mice are pretty interactive and like to sniff and follow each other, and the fragile X mice uh, ignore other mice. And so what we find with our drug is, one, it increases the psychic AMP. Two, it allows the connections between the neurons to be mature. Rather than being thin and long, they become shorter and fatter. And then three, the behavior improves. Uh, the the um, uh, mice treated with the drug now sniff and follow other mice. They bury marbles. They build nests. Uh, and... Uh, we think these changes in the, are driven by changes, behavioral changes, are driven by changes in brain structure because we can wash the drug out, and even two weeks later, there's sustained behavioral benefit. So it's, it's very interesting that a single drug with a single mechanism can have benefit in two such different diseases, an orphan disease that's a subset of autism and a disease affecting primarily the aging brain, uh, Alzheimer's. Were you in clinical development, and, and what's known about the safety and efficacy of the drug to date? So we're in mid-stage phase two human clinical trials, both in Alzheimer's disease and in fragile X syndrome. Um, the Alzheimer's disease uh, trial uh, just completed enrollment. It's, uh, we were enrolling 255 uh, patients across uh, 40 clinical sites in the United States. It's a three-month trial. And we're looking at primarily um, cognitive endpoints because we think the drug will provide symptomatic benefit in patients with early Alzheimer's disease. Fragile X syndrome is, uh, is an orphan uh, disease. We have orphan drug designation with the for BPN 14770. For the Fragile X clinical trial, which is being conducted at Rush University by our collaborator, Dr. Barry Kravis, we're enrolling um, 30 uh, male patients. It's a it's a two it's a crossover study where every patient is exposed either to the drug or to a placebo, and they cross over in the midpoints. So if they start on placebo, they cross over to drug. If they start on drug, they cross over to placebo. And we're at uh, 27 of uh, 30 patients enrolled into that trial, and hope that we'll complete enrollment in, in January. So the Alzheimer's trial will learn the results in uh, March of 2020, and the Fragile X uh, trial will learn the results in uh, midsummer. So I think both of those trials, you know, the readout will be quite interesting. We're looking at cognitive endpoints in, in both trials, and additional behavioral endpoints relevant to autism in the uh, in the Fragile X trial. If all goes well, when might you be in a position to apply for regulatory approval? Well, we still have late-stage phase three trials, right? So um, uh, we would be hoping to start the phase three registration trials uh, by the end of 2020, and uh, the Fragile X program would probably require uh, two uh, two years to enroll and get a readout. So I think we're looking at four to five years from now. Seems long, but in the <laughs> in the uh, uh, 
clinical development is, uh, you know, in order to show safety plus efficacy, it does take a little bit longer. So far, the safety profile that we're seeing with the drug is, is, is quite nice. We have very good tolerability. Uh, we're not seeing any any real issues with the uh, with the patients that are on the study. We're getting reports back from the clinical site that everything is going well. So we have our fingers crossed. Mark Gurney, CEO of Tetra Therapeutics. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for interviewing me and including me in your podcast. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.